Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. Our guest today is Dan Rosen, partner and founder of Commerce Ventures, a sector-focused VC fund investing in infrastructure and enablers for the commerce continuum. Dan is also an alum of our very own Wharton School. We talked about Dan's background and why he decided to build Commerce Ventures, the evolution of the fintech industry over the last 20 years, Commerce Ventures investment process and thesis, the importance of talent, diversity, and mentoring future generations, and a whole lot more. Now join me in an interesting conversation with Dan Rosen. Dan, thank you so much for joining us on the Wharton Fintech Podcast. Welcome back home. We are pleased to have yet another Wharton grad joining us. So that makes it extra special. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, very, very delighted. Maybe we can get started just by hearing about your journey and how you got to your current role. Sure. So the journey starts at Penn, which is fun for this podcast. Actually, when I was in college, I learned about venture capital for the first time while I was, interestingly, the manager of the Penn wrestling team, which sort of sounds surprising. We were on a, a trip to the Bay Area. And during that trip, we met with Ted Schlein, who you may know is one of the more senior partners at Kleiner Perkins, also a Penn alum and was involved in wrestling when he was at Penn. And he invited the whole team into the Kleiner Perkins office on a Saturday, I want to say, had a full spread laid out there and, and took us through a presentation of what is venture capital. And I think uniformly, everybody looked at it and like, wow, this sounds really neat. And I remember one of my teammates saying, you know, how do I get into venture capital? Like, can I get an internship there? And I remember Ted saying, no, that does, that's like, you know, maybe if you're a Stanford MBA student, we'll take an intern <laughs> or something like that. It's really hard. So I didn't think it was going to be easy to get into venture capital, but it just kind of opened my eyes to what venture capital was and always seemed like a really neat opportunity. When I graduated from Wharton in 99, it was one of the best you know, kind of economies that uh, up until really now, there was a huge tech boom and uh, I made the mistake with my finance and information systems degree of going into tech consulting. <laughs> so um, we're, I was working for a, a systems integration shop called American Management Systems, but working on putting big lending systems into banks, which was super, super boring. And I think I, I quickly realized that I had maybe picked the wrong path. So I started working on like some startup ideas and with a friend from uh, high school and accidentally tripped over a venture job as we were pitching one of those ideas to investors. And the first job I got in venture was at an early stage incubator. At the time, these were called incubators. Today, it would be akin to kind of an accelerator. And I was there for about six months before they ran out of capital and the, the dot-com era had kind of run its course, uh, or the dot-com boom, I should say, uh, had run its course. But I was fortunate to be able to parlay you know, that little bit of experience and a fair bit of motivation into finding another job at another venture capital firm, which was a bit different, called HarborVest. HarborVest, if you don't know it, is a very large private equity and venture capital fund of funds manager. So they manage tens and tens of billions of dollars on behalf of institutional investors that they allocate into venture and private equity funds. But they also have a very large direct investing group that most people don't know that much about. And so I was in that direct investing group for about four years. And interesting time to be there because we saw the dot-com 
bubble burst. And then we saw, you know, kind of a resurgence and, and, you know, kind of recovery in the latter part of my time there. But I also got involved in a bunch of other, you know, activities within HarborVest around kind of creating new fund constructs and helping out on the secondary side. And it was a really good education for me. And I left to go to, to business school at a school I won't name and pretty much realized at the end of that business school experience that I wanted to go back into venture and joined a firm called Highland Capital in the Boston area which I think you may know of uh, is an early stage venture firm with its roots in the Boston area, but was growing at the time to try to you know, expand to other geographies and, and just had grown its fund size pretty substantially. So when I was at Highland, that was actually the start of my interest in, in investing in fintech. I was originally hired to invest in mobile investments, starting with infrastructure, you know, kind of towers and spectrum and systems and then, you know, as we sort of worked our way up to the application layer, I was looking at the intersections of mobility with a whole bunch of traditional industries, including banking, payments, and retail. And it led to kind of an eye-opening experience for me, just in how under-innovated the whole payments ecosystem was at the time, this was 2007, and how much opportunity probably existed there. So I spent a whole bunch of time over the next few years at Highland looking into opportunities and payments and then more broadly into fintech and made a couple of investments there, one of which was probably the first neobank of the modern era called Perk Street, which inevitably was a couple of years too early for its time and didn't, didn't sustain itself. And then WePay, which was acquired by JP Morgan Chase, uh, was, was a more successful outcome. But that's what really got me into fintech. And you know, inevitably, over time, you know, both because of I think there was a, a, an emerging trend of, of starting new firms by you know, kind of up and coming uh, investment professionals, but also because I really wanted to just spend all my time on that sector focus. I opted to try to start Commerce Ventures and that's what led me to the firm that I created. Yeah, interesting. You mentioned payments. It's incredible how there are multiple private and public companies that on payments alone have built $50 billion companies. And then this is not just one, but multiple. Clearly, payments will continue to innovate and, and be an important focus. So uh, that's, a, that's a great story uh, and good segue to start talking about commerce ventures, right? I mean, I understand it's a sector-focused fund. Can you tell us what this means? and How have you grown the company over the last six to seven years? Sure. So first and foremost, I think there's an easy explanation or an answer to what is a sector-focused fund, which people would probably describe as we invest in a particular area of the economy. And you know, that will define both the things we're interested in, but also all the things we're not interested in or not relevant for. And that's the most basic understanding of that, the, the term. I think actually the deeper explanation, is, which is interesting and important to internalize, is if you build a sector-focused firm correctly, you are actually building in that sector expertise, that sector orientation, that network, um, that thematic approach to investing into every brick in the building, if you will. And so from day one, we started by raising most of our capital from very strategic investors. They were people who had run companies like PayPal or CyberSource or CheckFree or Global Payments or Walmart stores. And, and you sort of run through the, this long list of amazingly impressive people who had built or run very interesting companies. But then we also were fortunate enough to be able to attract some capital from a few corporates who are category leaders from across different categories within fintech and commerce more broadly. So you know, we sort of started with, let's bring in the capital from strategic sources 
if we bring in strategic investors, we'll get the benefit of being able to talk to them regularly and learn from them, both in terms of their experiences, but their reactions to opportunities that we're seeing. And you know, they'll probably send us deal flow they see because you know it'd be easier for us to sort of prosecute on those opportunities and evaluate them, you know, kind of as a dedicated resource than some of these individuals might on their own or even some of the corporates given everything else they're doing. And so that was the sort of first piece. But the other components that are super critical is you can't stop with just those relationships, the people who invest, you have to develop a broader set of relationships in the industry. So it's important to develop kind of contacts at most of the major large corporations and maybe many people at each of those corporations, if they're very strategic, and then you have to be in touch with them regularly. And being in touch with folks regularly is painful to do if it's artificial, which means you have to actually something to talk about, which means you have to constantly be working on new themes that are interesting, not just to us, but also to them, which gets me to this next component, which is you have to be thematic. So you have to create a universe of themes and constantly be populating that and thinking about other thematic areas that you are running by your network and where it feels like they're very interesting is spending time to understand how that particular theme will play out and ripple through the ecosystem of companies and startups that we play in. And of course, the last piece of it is that you're then sourcing, hopefully, investment opportunities in startups who are relevant to the themes that you're spending time on and who can be potentially selling things to the large corporates or working with the large corporates in some way. And the whole thing kind of works in concert. So we had to assemble a group of practitioners, investors, but also folks from the corporate ecosystem who could support all of those different diverse activities. And so they had to, everybody who is on our team pretty much comes with a pretty specialized set of experience and capabilities. So that's what it means to be, I think, a sector-focused investor, at least to us. And that's how we've built our firm. I believe you asked a second part of the question, but I forget. No, no, no. But uh, (laughs) this is actually interesting. So let's talk about the themes, right? Have you found a way to systematize your process to come up with these themes and to develop this thesis, I guess? Yeah. There are really two or three different ways that we come up with potential theme candidates. So the first one, which is obvious, is we're routinely speaking with our corporate relationships. And if you're talking to a large bank or a large payment processor or big insurance company, they're going to tell you, if you develop a good relationship, they're going to tell you the things that they're currently working on, but also the problems they see coming down the road or the things that they've come across that seem interesting to them. And those, you, you know, kind of put them in a big sheet of paper or in a whiteboard And those become really interesting theme candidates for you to consider. In addition, we're internally always reading and aggregating what information we can from a bunch of different sources, you know, listening to people like yourselves and the podcasts you put on, listening, you know, at conferences, you know, kind of being exposed to a lot of thought leadership and trying to figure out, you know, kind of what themes might make sense in the context of all that information. And then I say the last piece, which is for sure informative in theme development is the deal flow that you see. Sometimes, and you know, we try to be proactive, but sometimes you'll have this weird thing occur where like there'll be two or three companies started to do the same thing at around the same time. And there could be a reason for that, or it could just be, you know, kind of happenstance. But when you start to see a grouping like that, the best thing you can do is try to thematically attack like what's going on in this space rather than try to assess each one individually. 
So I think those are the three ways we come up with theme candidates. We look at those theme candidates and we could do this on a weekly basis. We don't always. We have a slot on a weekly basis for a theme presentation. We don't always use it, but we have offsites every quarter. And during COVID, those offsites are look very similar to our regular meetings, I guess. But we use some of that time to talk about themes that we care about and try to pick one or two themes that are good kind of priorities to pursue. When it all works the way you want it to, it could look like that. Interesting. And, and so let's talk about the, some of the themes, right? What are some of those areas within fintech where I guess lately you've found more interest or you are getting more excited about, you know, specifically for fintech? Sure. I'll try not to overwhelm you because there's so many. I mean, stuff that we've done historically uh, in the not distant past would include things like buy now, pay later, of course. And that's a theme that we, we first prosecuted on a couple of years ago and then kept refreshing. I'd say frictionless checkout, if you think about kind of the Amazon Go experience, is a theme that we pursued a couple of years ago and, and kept refreshing. More recently, we did a very extensive deep dive into the intersection point of healthcare and financial services, which led to us investing in several companies that I would call healthcare fintech, if you will. We also have been very focused, have done a lot of work in two areas that relate to credit. One of them is next generation credit infrastructure. And I can explain a little bit more what I mean by that. But you know, really the enablers and platforms that could enable, first and foremost, new players to issue credit and especially have a chance to issue credit cards, but also have those players eventually be relevant, maybe to incumbents. It's just that incumbents don't make decisions to switch infrastructure providers in in the credit card space very often. So that's one area. And the other area of credit is really credit building and helping consumers to improve their credit worthiness as perceived by the traditional system in infrastructure and players who judge credit worthiness, namely credit scores and credit files. So um, we've made a number of investments in that broader credit infrastructure space. And I suspect we will make more. If I look forward in that credit space, I would say we are optimistic that there ought to be more next generation issuers of credit cards. Let's call it that way. And those next generation issuers will likely take advantage of some fundamental distribution advantage that is not properly being prosecuted today. What do I mean by that? Historically, Affinity and co-brand issued credit cards have been limited to a pretty meaningful scale. So if you're not a retailer with a really large audience, if you're not a large brand or Affinity group who has millions of consumers that you can market to, you're probably too small for the traditional players to scale their infrastructure down to economically support you. It takes months and months to set up a program. There's a whole bunch of marketing expense that goes into it. It's a very complex process, and the infrastructure is not all that flexible. Well, today, we live in an environment where you know next-generation infrastructure with fundamentally better unit economics is sort of the topic du jour across fintech. So there are a lot of players who are, have built and are building infrastructure and enablers that will make it easier, including some of our portfolio companies, to issue credit cards for these new potential issuers and to do it at a scale that could be small and then grow fast. And so that opens up, I think, a whole world of opportunity for brands who haven't typically been associated with a credit card 
to be able to offer a co-branded credit card for the first time. So that we're really excited about that as well. I could talk about, we have a whole list. I'll tell you my one more theme that I'm really morbidly curious about. I think there's an opportunity in the sort of intersection of end of life services, specifically funeral homes and payments slash financial services. I would be willing to bet that the software and user interfaces associated with those very large ticket retail transactions are hugely outdated. And just the same way that we don't want to receive a paper bill at the restaurant or give our card to a waiter anymore, we just want to be able to do the whole transaction touchless. I can imagine that, you know, kind of anybody would rather have a digital experience as it pertains to completing the paperwork associated with that end of life experience of a loved one and, you know, have financing options or at least payment options that are inherently digital and easy to pursue or to investigate. So that's another, I mean, that's, that's great. I mean, we haven't even started work on that, but that's a theme I'm thinking about because I just think it's an area that nobody's talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I know that in the UK, there's a company looking at that we've had them on the show, not myself and my co-host Ryan, I think their name is Fairwill. Interesting company. And and it's exactly in the space that you're talking about. I'm not sure it's exactly the same pieces, but a lot, you know, it's a big industry and Huge. a lot of people do not want to deal with it, right? No, but it's also a naturally, there's sort of a natural potential virality to it, right? Because there could be crowdfunding from family members. It, you can pull in family members into the process and we've seen this in a related space around estate planning, if you think about trust and will and Cody, his team, but there's like two or three other players you know, that are in that space. And it's a really interesting high leverage set of interactions because you're talking about really high value financial transactions that occur that stem from or relate to you know, kind of this planning process or kind of the execution of something that relates to a, you know, a negative experience. Just an example of some themes that we, we like or care about or interesting. Then at what stage are you coming in? Are you investing the seed stage or a little bit later? We're typically investing early, which to us means most of the time seed or series A. We haven't defined ourselves by a particular stage name or round name perhaps. But 65 to 70% of our investments will go into Cedar Series A for the first time. And how long are you following and interacting with the entrepreneurs before you actually pull the trigger? It totally varies. So we could meet and invest immediately, but we could develop a relationship over multiple years before we end up making an investment. And I think what dictates the timing of when we invest relative to when we first meet a company, the factors include kind of where are they relative to our investment focus. So most of the time we're investing, a company will have a product built and probably some early feedback from users or customers. That's where we find that we can add the most value and we get the most leverage out of our network and our experience. So if a company hasn't built their product yet, it's not that it won't be interesting to us, but we might just tell them honestly, we think somebody else could be more helpful at this stage with the things you need to accomplish right now. And why would you take up some of your room in your round with us when we can add more leverage later? So we try to think about that, the question of when can we be helpful whenever we're investing. But you know, the other things that could dictate stage could be how long it takes for us to invest. It could be is like the round dynamics. Maybe there's no room. The round's too small. There's just not enough room for us. 
It might be that the fund we're investing in has invested in like a ton of early stage companies and we're near the end of our initial portfolio construction period. And we might be less likely to invest in a super early stage company at that point until, you know, it just, you think about portfolio construction. So, you know, there's a bunch of reasons and factors that can play in there, but it could be anything from a month to two years. That makes sense. And speaking of entrepreneurs, you know, I keep hearing this theme that talent within fintech, entrepreneurial talent has only gotten better over time. And that there's also been an increase along with that, an increase in just volume number of deals. Is this your experience as well? It is. And, you know, I'd say I'll speak anecdotally, but it all kind of lines up to what we're seeing, which is a lot more dedicated deal flow from the fintech space and from the sources and channels that we typically you know, see deal flow. I can't tell if that translates into deal flow up in the overall space. I mean, I read the same reports you do, I'm sure, but I'm not sure it's exactly kind of aligned. So we do see more deal flow. I'd say there's for sure more experienced and qualified executives and entrepreneurs and startup employees coming out of successful startups that may or may not have had exits. It kind of doesn't matter, right? And they're deciding that they want to you know, sort of go out on their own and with one or two kind of co-founders and create something that solves a problem that they might have solved themselves internally at the last company they were at, but where they didn't see a dedicated provider for solutions in that space. And we're seeing a lot of that happen. You know, as you get more and more fintech players at scale, there are a lot of entrepreneurs spinning out of those companies. And we've certainly seen that be the case with companies like Affirm, for sure, big companies like Marketa, Stripe, Square, and a number of other at-scale fintechs. Yeah, people living, companies like Stripe seem to be raising the best rounds. Right? Uh, what has that done for, for valuation? There's a popular trope that I've observed amongst what I would call some of the longer-term investors in fintech, that valuations are crazy and what's going on in the ecosystem is absurd. And I don't like totally disagree with that. I would say that is the case for a small, small percentage of deals. And those are the deals where you do have a very, you know, kind of impressively credentialed founder who's coming out of one of these top at scale fintechs. And there's a lot of sort of baked in investor interest because of the people they worked with who are making angel investments and the funds that have been started by people who have left those businesses. And so they're kind of 1% or fintech deals where, you know, kind of the valuations quickly get out of hand and competitive dynamics set in as well. You have this phenomenon where a lot of people who, there have been people who've been investing in fintech for, you know, 10, 15 years. And then there are people who, you know, are the fintech person at, pick your platform firm. And those people are feeling the pressure. They're feeling the pressure to invest in, you know, kind of whatever potential category winner in a new space emerges. And so they are aggressively competing for deal flow. And that bids up valuations. With all of that said, I would say we're still finding a lot of great opportunities to invest in, in entrepreneurs who are really strong and know how to build businesses and solve difficult problems where they're just less flashy when you start. That's why we like infrastructure a bit more than we tend to invest in kind of challengers. So our infrastructure focus is really on that fundamental point of like, 
Let's pick the things that are hard. That'll draw less attention, hopefully. That's what that was our hope. I think now it's people are starting to figure it out. And then once these entrepreneurs have figured out the solution to the problem and they've started to scale their revenues, everybody will start to get excited in it. So there's that maybe that arbitrage of picking something hard that seems like it'll take a while. And then once, you know, if you know how to invest in good opportunities and good entrepreneurs, eventually they will become flashy and appeal to a lot of people. So that's what we try to do. And as a result, I think we're able to still see you know, some, a pretty good amount of deal flow that has reasonable pricing and valuations. But there's no question that valuations in general have gone up and that there is a frenzy at the top of the market that is I have not seen before in my venture career. And then since we're talking about talent and people, I know that you also think about diversity, right? And how this manifests itself across entrepreneurs, across you know, your own portfolio companies. I think uh, it would be good to hear your thoughts on this subject. Love to share. I think as, as we've discussed before, this is a passion area for me. I think a lot of us realized kind of how bad this problem was over the last few years, just in terms of diversity and deal flow, starting with gender diversity, and then also diversity in the sort of venture investor base. And I think this year, you know, kind of there was a spotlight shown on racial diversity in venture, both on the investing side as well as on the portfolio company side. So I think we, like a lot of other people probably, but certainly we took a lot of time in May-June timeframe to really think through how we were operating and what we needed to do differently to be better about investing in diverse founders. Because frankly, we looked at you know our portfolio and it was okay, but really not where it needed to be. Like we, we realized we were not doing a good enough job, not by a long shot, in seeking out diverse deal flow and investing in diverse founders. So, you know, we went through a process of coming up with some statements that we, we shared publicly. We signed on to a bunch of pledges. We overtly reached out to a lot of colleagues, both on the corporate side, but also in the venture ecosystem, who we thought had better access to diverse deal flow so that we could hopefully get the benefit of them sharing some of their deal flow that was a little bit more diverse than ours because our deal flow tended to be very network centric, which means it was coming from people who might look like us and have similar backgrounds and thus be less likely to be diverse. And we were very intentional about seeking out every time we would read about a company in our sector that had diverse founders we would be overly intentional about reaching out and trying to make a connection with those founders so that we made sure we were understanding what all the entrepreneurs that are diverse are doing in our spaces to the best of our ability. And so since, and the last thing I'd say just mechanically is we actually started tracking kind of this type of deal flow to be more aware of how we were doing in terms of finding deals and opportunities with that, those types of founders and hopefully investing in them. And since May, we've seen, I think, almost 100 opportunities with founders who were either women or racially underrepresented or both. And we've invested in four and we've committed to another one that I hope will close in the next week. So I'd say, you know, it's an area that we've done a lot. We think a lot about it and we'd like to do more. We've set up OKRs for next year on this topic. Like we want to share how we're doing with the public. and. Yeah, I guess I'm optimistic that we will continue to do better and better. We'll see more and more deal flow, especially the more we talk about it, the more we ask and invite that type of deal flow. 
And I think generally, honestly, it's under ventured deal flow. So I think you know there's a lot of good opportunities there to make money by investing in those founders. And last thing I say is we set up a fellowship, and this was really designed to bring more people into our, the venture ecosystem on the investing side. So we have targeted bringing in a college junior or senior one per semester to be a fellow at CV, where we'll teach them about what it means to be a venture investor and expose them to some of our companies, some of our LPs, and then more broadly, other VC firms. And the hope is that even if, whether or not they go immediately into venture, we've opened their eyes to this, you know, what it means to be in this ecosystem and prepared them to potentially have a, a career in venture. So we've just completed the first of those fellowships and we have the next fellow lined up, which we will shortly announce for the spring. So excited about that, but that's on the sort of investing professional side. Kind of how you got your eyes open by Heiner uh, Perkins, right? That was my thinking. I mean, it, you never know if that will work for other people, but I just think the sooner you know about a type of career, the earlier you can decide you want to plan to pursue it. Yeah. And then last thing I'll, I'll ask you is we talked to a lot of partners at VCs. We also talked to a lot of fintech founders. We don't talk to as many founders of venture capital funds, and that's your case. This is a company that you've built and you know, you're a team of multiple people. What are your thoughts about you being an entrepreneur? Do you, do you consider yourself an entrepreneur? Thanks for asking that. I love this question. I think if I'm being very respectful of my startup colleagues, startup founder colleagues, I would say it's different. I'd like to think of myself as a fund entrepreneur, which is, I think, fundamentally different than being a startup founder. And if I think back to what Steve Blank describes or defines a startup as, which I believe is a temporary organization searching for a scalable business model, it's different, right? I mean, the mission of a venture firm isn't to scale necessarily. It's to identify and execute on an investing strategy that would drive profitable, you know, kind of overperformance type of returns to its investors over a lengthy period of time. A startup's mission is really to find an opportunity where the company can solve a problem that enables them to generate you know, substantial revenues and eventually maybe profits, who knows, but to capture a lot of enterprise value that grows and eventually they can realize on behalf or can be realized on behalf of the investors in the company and the shareholders in the company. So there's like a design life cycle, if you will to that startup venture. So the, what it takes to be a founder of that, I think is very different. I think it's a lot harder, a lot harder because you have to, you know, kind of conceptualize something from the start and move through this life cycle of like solving it first yourself, hiring a small team to attack it, and then pitching for money there, and then hiring more people who can manage other people, and then scaling yourself such that you actually can be a manager of managers and still raise more capital. I mean, it's like what it takes. And then eventually you get to this point where you're like, okay, you know, am I considering an exit? Am I taking a company public? So like being a founder of, of a company across all those different stages is, is so much more challenging in my view. It doesn't mean that it's not challenging to start a fund or a firm, uh, something maybe you'll have some experience with, but I think it's different. Fair enough, fair enough. Well, then I actually lied. We have one more question. And this one is, Outside of work, uh, maybe you can tell us what are some of your hobbies and things that you enjoy outside of commerce ventures. Yeah, 
it's a tough question to answer in this pandemic COVID year. I'd say for sure, the number one thing I do outside of the time I spend working is spending time with my, I have two young daughters. One is four and the other is, is almost two. And so I don't think that's a hobby. If you're a parent, <laughs> I'm told it's not a hobby to be a parent. It's kind of your job, but I do enjoy really spending time with my daughters. In a normal you know, kind of time, I would love, I love travel, would love to be, you know, kind of in a warmer place now for sure. But just getting back to the, being able to travel with my wife and, and ideally with, with our family, you know, there's a whole bunch of other activities, biking and, you know, sports and things like that, that I, I can't even remember at this point. But, you know, the things I'd love to do next year, I'd love to read more books. I'd love to get to the point where I can, when your kids grow up a little bit, you can get to back to that, I think. And I'd love to get back to traveling. I think those are two things I, I miss. I think uh, a good way to keep yourself honest will be to listen to this podcast in a year <laughs> and see if suggestion. you get to, get to read some, some more books and, and travel. Hopefully the travel part will happen. That means the world got better. But Dan, thank you so much for joining us again. Welcome back home. Uh, we, we hope to see you around campus, either me or future generations and keep doing what you're doing. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. We also want to extend a special thank you to our show editor, Rafael Ostria. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.